0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast Session 485, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. And you gotta add some of the little tricks. uh, uh You'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. And uh, first and foremost, you probably hear that my voice is a little gravelly today. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, uh, for some reason, just completely lost my voice this last weekend. I was on the road with the Countess Luann. We were up at the Foxwoods Casino in um, Mashantucket, Connecticut, and I was sitting in my room, had a couple Skype lessons, and then a couple meetings, and before you know it, I had no voice. Weirdest thing ever. Um, Then, of course, I proceeded to screw it all up by um, having a couple of drinks with my bandmates in the bar and trying to talk over extremely loud music. So then I really lost it <clears throat> and I'm trying to get it back. Anyway, forgive me if I sound uh, a little rough and gruff. That is where I'm at today. Um, I also want to make an announcement before we begin today's topic that I'm really excited. Uh, That our special guest on the Daniel Glass, the 2019 Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive here in New York is going to be the great Kenny Washington. Um, For those of you who don't know, Kenny Washington is a longtime veteran of the New York jazz scene. He's one of the most well-respected and uh, beloved and uh, well-recorded New York jazz drummers of the last 40 years. Uh, He's played with every great name in the business. Um, he also teaches at Juilliard and, um, I believe, uh, a couple of other schools around the New York area, but Juilliard does not get any heavy hitting, har- harder hitting than that. Um, Kenny's a monster drummer, monster educator, and he is going to be joining us at the Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive this year. And I think he's going to be doing something about brushes. So I'm very excited to have him. It's really an honor to have one of the top jazz drummers in New York and educators be with us. Um, I believe that the date, the last date for early bird signups is May 7th. Um, We're just a couple of days before the beginning of May at the time of this recording of 2019. And um, so I really hope you can join us. Go to the Clinics slash intensive tab on my website, danielglass.com, and um, punch that in and you'll get all the information. All right, so without further ado, I want to jump into today's topic. Today's topic is um, I'm calling this uh, drummers as actors. And you might wonder sort of what I'm talking about here. Um, I want to start as I often do by telling a story, uh, perhaps that led me to, uh, this particular topic. Uh, and this story goes back quite a number of years, um, to my time in Los Angeles after the nineties, uh, when I was working exclusively pretty much with Royal Crown Review for about seven years, that was my one and only gig. You know, we had our whole, um, swing resurgence that we were a part of in the nineties. Um, uh, that kind of fell out of favor and the 9-11 hit. And so in the sort of the first decade of the 2000s, 2002, about 2010, I was doing much more freelancing in LA uh, before I moved here to New York in 2010. And I was certainly still working with Royal Crown, but not on a full-time basis. And I was doing jazz and swing gigs, but lots of other kinds of gigs as well. And one of the You know, obviously, I wanted to get into the circuit of uh, very high-end kind of wedding and corporate bands. And at least in L.A. and certainly here in New York, there are agencies that specialize in this kind of work. I had been introduced to um, a terrific drummer named Russ McKinnon. Uh, Russ was a member of Tower of Power for a bunch of years in the early 90s. And uh, he played with Barry Manilow for a lot of years and just is a tremendous player and a great educator. And Russ was doing a lot of gigs with one of these top West Coast, uh, we call them casuals out on the West Coast, even though there's nothing casual about them. uh, They're, they're, you know, gigs you usually end up wearing a tuxedo on. But uh, on the West Coast, they're called casuals. Interestingly, on the East Coast, they're called club dates, even though They usually don't take place at clubs in the sense of clubs that we know them, but that that term comes from country clubs. So um, whether you call them casual or club dates, they're neither casual, nor do they happen at clubs unless they're country clubs. But we typically, those are how we refer to uh, corporate gigs, weddings, bar mitzvahs, those type of of gigs. So I wanted to get in on some of this work and Russ said, well, why don't you come out? Uh, We'll be doing one of these events at, uh, some fancy conference center or something somewhere. And, um, it's cool. If you come and hang, you can get to know the band. I think the bass player was Bruce Hornsby's bass player. You know, these guys are all top LA yo cats as we call them. Um, and I remember I sat in during sort of the cocktail hour. So it was kind of mellow music and he let me sit in and he gave me some feedback and he said, yeah, I mean, uh, your playing is great. But, um, one thing I noticed is that, you know, each tune, that you played, it really needs to actually sound like that actual song. And most of these tunes, I was familiar with them. Um, There was one uh, tune, Nora Jones, uh, was her big hit, Don't Know Why. Um, You probably remember that. She was a huge phenomenon in the, I think, late nineties and early two thousands. And so that song was a popular song that people would play on these kind of corporate dates. And he said, yeah, that what you were doing was cool, but it wasn't what was on the record. So, you know, he said, you, you got to play it exactly like it is on the record. And the more I thought about this and the more, you know, when I talked to my students uh, about this topic, um, because obviously many drummers play in bands that are covers bands and whether it's a blues band or a classic rock band or maybe a, you know, fifties rock band, or maybe you play like nineties stuff, or maybe you're in a tribute band where you're playing the music of Led Zeppelin or the music of the Eagles or the music of, you know, whoever. Uh, in all these cases, the audience is coming to these gigs because they have an affinity for that band or for those songs and their affinity is that these songs, you know, are often songs you hear on the radio all the time, songs that were very popular at one point. Now they're played as either oldies or as, you know, classic hits, so to speak. Um, And there's always a canon of those songs that we have to learn as musicians. And so the audience wants to be, they, they have a special feeling for that song. Um, you know, let's just take Bob Seger's old time rock and roll, right? Well, I grew up with that song and that song brings back certain memories for me. It's not really my favorite song, uh, to be quite honest, I'm pretty sick of hearing it and i never really liked it that much, but I'm just using it as an example. So when people hear old time rock and roll, they want the music to move a certain way, to lean a certain way, um, and to they want to experience it a certain way. They want to be taken on the same journey that they are taken on when they listen to that record. So, and if the environment in which you're playing that song is, say, a, a, in a club or in a tribute band or at a wedding, then you're working in a strictly commercial situation and they want that thing to sound like the record. And if, you know, if if the, the groove is like a straight eighth rock beat, you know, something like that, and you're going... That is not what old-time rock and roll is about. It may be how you feel like playing it at that moment, or maybe that's just how you play all rock songs by adding a bunch of 16th ghost notes in there. But the point is you're not doing your job in those circumstances and if your goal is to get more work, get paid more, get more gigs in those circumstances then that is not the way to do it. So um and 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 we've all had we've all experienced this. You know, and I I have a story. I was uh as I said I was up at Foxwoods just this past weekend working with the, uh, the Countess, uh, Luanne de Lesseps, right? One of the Real Housewives of New York. And that gig, by the way, is out of hand. We're, we're playing sold-out theaters now all over the country. So I would go check my website if you want to come check that out. It's quite an interesting gig, and I'm, I think I'm going to do an entire podcast about it because it's really been a, an interesting journey for me as a drummer. Again, in figuring out the appropriate um, gear, music, style, chops exactly what i'm going to do to approach that gig which isn't necessarily in my normal wheelhouse but because it isn't i'm having a hell of a lot of fun with it but we um you know Foxwoods is a big big casino complex it has two or three hotels three or four performance venues tons of restaurants and clubs and shops of course all that kind of stuff and it's an Indian casino, so it's, it's in the middle of nowhere, really, it, it, on the Indian, Mashantucket Indian Reservation. So we're out there, and, you know, our show's over by 9.30 or 10. So I, it was our, we did, uh, it was the end of a, of a little run. We did a couple of shows, one in the Boston area, then we came down to con- Connecticut and did this show. So me and a couple of guys in the band were like, well, let's get together and have a drink. And this is where I blew my voice out, by the way. So we go to this brewery that they have is one of the the bars. It's kind of a microbrewery type of a vibe. And and there's a band playing. And trust me, like in this day and age, I am all about hearing a live band at a at a bar or a club because this used to be something that was everywhere, um, was created tons of employment for musicians. Uh, and today, of course, you know, so many uh, of those situations are disappearing either because it's dance club with DJ music or, you know, um, it's just live music in general is disappearing. And so, you know, good old fashioned bar band. I was really happy to see a bar band there. I was like, yeah, right on. And they were good. They were, they were a very good, competent band. They, I remember they were doing, I love rock and roll. They were doing, uh, Uh, what else? They they were doing some pretty good stuff. But what I noticed, and this, you know, getting back to my point that I'm sure all of you notice as well, or have noticed, is that the drummer just, it was like they were playing, you know, this song from the 80s, then this song from the 70s, then this song from the 90s. You know, three different bands, three different eras, three different, you know, variations on rock. I mean, it was all basically hard-hitting classic rock, but it just sounded like the same drummer on all the tunes. And I think that's what Russ McKinnon was talking about when he said, you know, people, you gotta nail the exact drum part. uh, And, and you got to take people on that journey. And I wasn't being taken on that journey. It was a high energy band. They were all very good musicians, but I just felt like it's the same drummer doing his same thing over all these tunes. And maybe he he was playing a part that was similar to the record, but I really didn't feel like the band was that invested in bringing the audience that deep experience. And maybe I'm overthinking this, you know, maybe if you're just out at a bar and you're drinking and you know, you hear something that sounds familiar, that's, that's fine. That's good enough. But to me, that's not good enough. And in the world that I inhabit, um, that's not good enough. Uh, and I think we should aspire to um, to 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 really develop this. So um, you know that Russ Russ McKinnon comment those many years ago got me on this path of thinking about how can I do a better job of of you know inhabiting the role you could say, and this brings me to the to the topic at hand, which essentially is drummers as actors, right? And so you know. Um, there's, you know, the the famous uh, Lee Strasberg, uh, you know, school of acting, right? And you hear about Marlon Brando and James Dean and, you know, all these incredibly famous actors who, who, you know, developed a brand new style in the, the 50s and into the 60s, which was called method acting. And the idea was, you know, acting maybe prior to that was sort of more of a stylized form where you would recite you know, thinking about like Shakespeare, you recite the lyrics, the lyrics, the you know the the words, the the this the, the your your lines in a particular kind of a dramatic fashion, uh, and you see a lot of older movies in the 30s and 40s, and you, you sort of see that there's sort of this very stylized way that the actors acted, but when you get to somebody like Brando, it's like it's a, it's a whole new thing. And that was a very radical revolutionary turn for, for acting and for films in, in the fifties uh, that really made things much more realistic and hard hitting. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they mean by method acting, but the idea is that you become that person. You really dig deep into your emotions and you, you inhabit That role, and so much so that people like Brando would just get into character, and they would not get out of character. They would literally live life like that person, and that's you know what we call method acting. That it's like it's you know you really try to understand uh, their emotional experiences and how what would they do in this situation, and you you try to become them. And I think one of the most famous modern day method actors is Daniel Day Lewis, who you know of course he played Lincoln uh, in in one of his more recent films. And apparently he would just become Lincoln and no one on the set would ever see him be anything but Lincoln. And he wouldn't talk to anybody. He would, he would just stay in character the whole time and try to live his life as Abraham Lincoln, you know, which I think that's pretty cool. And it's dedicated. You have to, uh, you know, you're taking on a role, the most famous one of the most famous us presidents ever one of the most storied and and imitated in in movies and and, and in the theater so you you've got to you know you got to really bring it and of course that's what Danny day lewis is famous for so you know as drummers let, let's look at this subject a little more deeply and just to get <clears throat> like uh you know there's a couple different aspects. So the, the first way that this really hit me, um, as, as far as, well, before I get into how I got into this acting thing, let's just talk a little bit more about what our role is as drummers. So, um, you know, I think the, Versus other instrumentalists, the reason why drummers have to inhabit the role almost more than anybody else. I mean, for example, if you're a guitar player and you have to play two different songs, you can hit your pedal board and uh, change your guitar sound, right? So that's going to immediately allow you to sound more like one guitar player than another. You can imitate, you know, say how Jimmy Page sounded. Then on the next tune, you can imitate how Angus Young sounds. On the next tune, you can imitate how uh, Joe Walsh sounds or whatever. Um, and you know the same is true for a keyboard player. Um, you 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 know you've got a million different sounds to choose from. So immediately you can almost change your entire rig. Sometimes guitar players have multiple guitars. They'll switch from a Telecaster to a Strat or from a Strat to a Les Paul. Um, drummers we generally on these kind of gigs don't have the luxury. We don't have the luxury to like bring in an entirely uh, different drum set. Um, you know for every tune. Oh well, you know Bottom played this kind of a 1960s and 70s ludwig kit so for the led zeppelin tune i'm going to bring in this oh but now i'm switching to an 80s sound of phil collins had like a totally different sound so it's it's harder for us as drummers because how do we make those changes from one song to the next and how do we inhabit the role so you know freddie gruber you know and the way we have to do this is we have to talk about what we're doing is dancing. We're using our entire body. Now, whenever I bring this up, a lot of drummers roll their eyes at me and they go, man, I don't dance. you know I play the drums, I don't dance. I'm not a dancer. Don't talk to me about dancing. but sorry kids, this is a an extremely important uh, thing about what we do. And, you know and Freddie Gruber, Well, I'll talk about Freddie in a second, but um, I mean, what do you think drumming is? Drumming is about moving all four of your limbs, your hands, your feet, your arms, your legs in a coordinated fashion uh, and to do it in a beautiful way that brings forth a beautiful choreography that brings forth uh, great music. So, you know, if Michael Jordan wasn't fast on his feet and, you know, didn't have those moves. He never would have gotten the title air Jordan, uh, Roger Federer, the great tennis player is known for his unbelievable footwork. And when you watch him, he's graceful and gazelle like. And the reason he won so many championships is that he's using so much less energy to get around the court than his opponents. So he's that's dancing. You know, there's, there's nothing different between that and say what, you know, Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly or Michael Jackson, uh, uh, what they, what they were doing on stage. And, and, you know, so Freddie used to talk about it. He said, well, if you were a dancer and when talking particularly about footwork, but also with the hands, if you're a dancer, you don't just shove your, mash your feet into the floor when you dance. I mean, you'd look like a, you know, Frankenstein monster. The idea is you come off the floor, your feet are constantly coming off the floor and you're constantly flowing or floating. Same thing with Air Jordan, same thing, you know, with any great athlete, any great martial artist. Um, And, you know, we have to think about what we're doing in the same way. So maybe I'll do a specific lesson about foot technique at some point, because that certainly has a lot to do with it. But in general, my philosophy as a teacher is about teaching people about what I call, it's all about the ups, meaning that if we can really focus on how we set up what we do, strokes, how we set up strokes, and if we that's where we put our energy, then the downs will be natural and easy and effortless. And again, if when we throw the stick down, we focus on how it comes back to us, the rebound, uh, we can then, um, you know, uh, uh, it will make our lives a lot easier. As drummers, we generally think much too much about the down and not enough about the up, about the setups. So I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. Uh, I talk about this incessantly with my students. It makes up the fundamental core of what I teach about. And although we're just, you know, touching on it today, it is a massive uh, course of study that's really deep and, and really incredible. And uh, I certainly got my start um in understanding these concepts from freddie, but i've really kind of run with it in my own direction. So We are dancing we are playing a choreography now That doesn't mean you have to be a ballet dancer in tights john bonham, you know We always talk about how john bonham's sound is his groove and That is an amazing kind of a choreography so, um What does this have to do with acting Right, you're talking about at dancing talking about acting Uh, this really came home to me when I was practicing, uh, one time back in LA and I put on when the levee breaks and I was sort of in a mood where I just, you know, that song is so groove oriented. It's a hypnotic song. John Bonham really, um, it just has this kind of drone guitar, just one chord through the whole verse section until it gets to the, to the release, the... but otherwise the whole entire song is just. You could literally just play one note on the bass, and it would work uh, for for that the the main section of the song. And the whole idea of the song is supposed to be like a Middle Eastern hypnotic kind of a drone that just puts you in this. Relentless pulse. Bonham doesn't play very many fills in that song. It's really, it's just about like making you insane with this groove that just keeps on going and going and going. And I think the idea was if you think about what is the song about, um, the idea was to you know, to show you the sort of the relentless punishment that that and the almost the spiritual suffering that the the people of um, I guess New Orleans, or you know, where, where, wherever it was that the levee was breaking, and that of course is based on uh, a, an old spiritual, black gospel tune, um, which again, sort of through these dark, rootsy, bluesy things, kind of raises uh, up the you know the, the the wrath of God, as it were. So it's a, it's you know, uh, it keeps on raining. the Levee's going to break. If levee breaks, we have no place to stay. Sat on the levee and moaned. You know, like all these kind of lyrics of just like pain and suffering. And you could kind of imagine what people were going through in the uh, Katrina down there. And I think it was 2005 um, when the levees did break and when there was massive flooding and storms and the suffering that people endured. So, you know, anyway, this, we've got to make this happen when we're going to play this song. If you just kind of learn the groove and you're thinking about counting it or what your hands and feet are doing, you're not playing the role. The role is to be John Bonham and to make this ultra hypnotic thing happen with your groove. That's just so consistent and driving, you know, another Led Zeppelin tune along these lines is cashmere of course. Um, and that is, Bonham doesn't play very many fills he plays an extremely simple beat but the way it sits the way it fits in the overall groove it's powerful and hypnotic and you're taken to far-off exotic lands you know Kashmir is in India and um you know it's 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 a mystical kind of a hypnotic tune so I was practicing along with this song and really getting into the vibe of it and suddenly I felt myself become John Bonham all right now I'm a skinny white Jewish guy who grew up in Hawaii and my upbringing and my physicality are, have very little to do with Bonham. He grew up in an earlier time than I did. Um, although our, our, we were both on this earth for maybe, uh, I think he died in 80. So, you know, for about 14 years, but, um, you know, he grew up in the Midlands of England and this song is being recorded in 70 or 71, uh, in, in a, in a, a a big estate manor way out in the countryside in, in England somewhere, um, called Headley Grange. And they set up the drums. Uh, I mean, this is a very, it's a famous, I talk about it in my John Bonham uh, podcast that I did. Um, but you get the sense of enormity he is an enormous man with long hair and a beard and he hit the drums you know with great power and authority and you just have this paul bunyan like feeling so i had this sensation as i was playing along of just becoming this and trying to swagger like john bonham and hit the drums as i imagined john bonham would hit the drums and and you just let go and absorb yourself in the music and i felt like okay i'm i'm method acting i'm getting into this role i'm not me anymore i am john bonham right i'm trying to channel him i'm trying to match his physicality with my physicality and so this is a a fantastic you know thing that you can do you don't need any other musicians around all you need are your drums and and uh and, and, and some music and some headphones. And what I would also suggest is that when you do something like this, say you're going to do something on Bonham, try to mimic what his gear setup was like. So in other words, um, you know, go look at a picture of John Bonham when he played, you'll notice he had a 26 inch bass drum with nothing inside it. Um, he had a 14 inch rack tom. So, you know, uh, that might be too big for the rack tom you have, but set up your biggest rack tom and then tune it low, really low. Although I think he actually had big toms, but he tuned them up kind of high. But the bass drum, you want it to almost sound like a marching bass drum. If you have um, a metal snare or a brass snare, six and a half, a deep snare, set it up and lower it. Uh, play around with it, you know. And and this is not to take too much of a deviation, but this is something I've been doing on this gig with the, with the real housewives. Cause, um, she does some swing and, and jazz stuff, you know, that's more in my wheelhouse, but she also, um, plays a, a lot of like rock, you know, kind of rock type grooves. Uh, some of the guests that come up, they do like power ballads. Um, so like, uh, total eclipse of the heart from the 80s and joe cocker doing you can leave your hat on um and uh queen uh, somebody to love these are heavy songs with big drums uh And, you know, normally I, I crank everything up pretty much, but I've been experimenting and I've been having them put a a brass six and a half deep brass snare drum on my rider and I've been tuning it lower and lower. So it's a good backbeat drum because there's not much I'm doing in the way of fancy stick work on the snare, which is what I would normally be doing in, in my regular jazz and swing type work. So your gear can help you in your quest to channel, a role to method act a particular drummer right it's as if like you know if you're if you're an actor you you put on the costume you put on the makeup uh and you spend time in the you know in the, the physical manifestations of that character you're playing so this is These are ways that we can make the acting experience be better. You know, John Bonham used heavy cymbals, put up some heavy cymbals, heavy hi-hats, hit them hard, feel the power. You know, even if you're a small person, it doesn't matter. You can still play a role. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's no reason why you can't do it. I'm going to mention a couple of other drummers that have really affected me from sort of different types of genres, but have affected me in a similar way where I feel like, Um, I spent some time trying to channel what they were about. Um, one of these other drummers is is, of course, the great Steve Jordan. And, you know, I'm always amazed at Steve Steve Jordan's groove and how good it sounds and how fat it sounds. So he uses, I think, I mean he uses large hats. I think 17, 16, 15. He I've heard people say he uses those all different, those size hats, but certainly larger than 14s. Um he also sets up his drums very much like vintage drums meaning they're very little muffling fairly wide open uh, all felt beater um, probably uses heads that are similar to calf um, i use the aquarian modern vintage heads i love them every time i turn a friend onto those they they completely freak out and also um, you know another this is a this makes another great point about this acting process is that you can, you can sort of change the way you're sitting or the way your pelvis is to enhance how you're playing this role. So I remember, again, going back to my lessons with Freddie Gruber, and he would tell me, man, like, check out your pelvis. You know, if you if you're playing like a heavy kind of a funk groove or rock groove that needs to feel heavier, drop into your pelvis a little more. Let your pelvis just roll back just an inch and drop down into it. And that will help you to drop into the groove that you're playing. And I kind of thought, really? You know, and he was saying, if you want to say you're playing a shuffle and it's a real up, light, ding, 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 get up, come up on the pelvis, bring the whole upper body so that you're up over that cymbal. And you will feel like you're skipping on top of it. you know, And at the time I was sort of like, come on, man, this isn't this this doesn't happen. you can't do this. Well, guess what? Lo and behold, it works great. So I work with my students on pelvic work and pelvic positioning as we go through, um, you know, our studies because it's amazing when you get access to your pelvis, which is a, really a movable joint in a way. It's a movable part of your body that really when you get in touch with it, you can change the physicality of your playing. So I remember watching, going back to Steve Jordan, I remember watching his DVD, uh, which is one of my all-time favorite instructional uh, DVDs, by the way. It's called The Groove Is Here. It came out probably in the early 90s. It's really, it's produced by a Japanese company. It's super kind of just... Basic. There's no, you know, it's not like some of these more modern things with, you know, graphics and little digital sounds and fancy, you know, he's playing on the streets of Bangkok and now he's playing in New York City and, you know, uh, thinking of the Jojo, Jojo Mayer DVDs, which are, of course, very uh, high production value but uh, or todd zuckerman's dvds where he's like in a beautiful house overlooking the colorado river playing but steve jordan is just like yeah here's the groove i played on this song and then he just plays it but the drums sound amazing and then there's some some tunes of him jamming with danny Korchmar legendary guitar player the two of them play this shuffle that's like good good, good, good. and it's just two guys no bass player Oh, maybe there's an organ player Uh, There's no bass player though. It's bad. It's so ridiculous. So I love this DVD. It's really lo-fi, but it sounds great. And it's just simple. You know, it's clear and simple like Steve Jordan's grooves. It's, it's, It's about, you know, the simplicity. So I spent a lot of time with that DVD. I liked the way he moved. The way he dances is really beautiful. And I started to kind of Feel myself do that, and he plays traditional grip. So when I'm playing funky music, generally like don't catch, don't go catch, you know, sort of slower, but maybe a little faster. Catch, boom, back, I try to become Steve Jordan. I drop in to my pelvis a little more. I let my arms be a little more droppy, feel them as dead weight, and I focus on how I'm lifting them and just let them drop in, the leg drop in. And you know, again, I teach a lot about this. I because a lot of people talk about groove and feel and the pocket, but they don't really ever explain physically what the hell you're supposed to do, either in your hands or your body to get that. And that's all what I teach about. What I teach about is movement, motion, balance set up, how history designed, you know, uh, the pulse and the way our bodies should move to create that pulse that is our historical precedent in a way. So I'm really into this. And I think this idea of acting, you know, playing a role really comes into it. Um, So that's the Steve Jordan vibe. Now, exactly on the opposite end of that spectrum is the Brian Blade vibe, and for those of you who may not know, Brian Blade is, I would say, one of the premier jazz drummers in the last 15, 20 years. Um, he's, he's played quite a bit of pop, but he's known mainly as a jazz drummer. He's also, he's from New Orleans um, and is is incredible. He, he does a lot of stuff with Daniel Lanois, who is a rock producer, but very eclectic. And he uses Brian on all his recordings. Uh, but he's also worked with Wayne Shorter and Chick Corea and, uh, his own bands. And, um, I saw him with Billy Childs several times, the great LA piano player and composer. Um, and what's interesting is that Brian Blade has a very different, uh, physicality. He, his role, you know, his, his character that he inhabits is, is, is like a gazelle. It's light. It bounds across the, you know, the musical, the musical African veldt as it were. Um, and he, his movements are very unorthodox. Um, he, he's very light, but when he crashes a symbol, a lot of times instead of, you know, hitting the symbol and pulling the stick off and letting the symbol move he'll almost like lean or push on the symbol so he'll hit it but he'll keep his stick in it so he gets the crash sound but it doesn't overwhelm the whole situation and you know he's uh all over his his hi-hat um Uh, doing all kinds of interesting ways that he holds his sticks. He switches between traditional and matched a lot. And then one thing that he does, which I've really never seen another drummer do the way he does it, he takes his feet off the pedals all the time. He'll be playing and he'll just pick up the bass drum foot and just be like, ah, you know, when he's in the throes of it and he just holds his leg up or he'll put his, his bass drum foot behind him on the floor and keep playing, or he'll put his hi-hat foot behind him on the floor and just keeps on moving. And you know, the guy has a very unique style. He's truly one of my all-time favorite drummers. If you, um, he played a lot with Josh Redman as well. Uh, just Google him. Uh, you'll, you know, you'll see punch him in Brian blade into YouTube. You'll see him doing his thing. And so I've seen him play up close in jazz clubs, a variety of times. And what inspires me about him is that if I'm playing jazz, you know, as we all know, jazz is, is, can be much more difficult, uh, than other styles because it requires the drummer to, constantly be improvising, constantly trying to come up with new and fresh ideas and new and fresh ways of interacting with the other musicians. So whereas rock tends to be pattern oriented and you dig into your groove and really lay into it and stick to it, jazz is kind of the opposite, that you're expected to, um, be free. But of course, with that kind of freedom comes an enormous responsibility, right? You gotta, you know, uh, you've gotta really, um, say something, you got to have different ideas. So doing things like taking my foot off the pedal or, you know, kind of playing a lot of ideas with my sticks on the hi-hat or, you know, doing these kind of weird, um, sort of unorthodox moves, pushing the stick into symbol. I remember trying that and just going, damn, this is really interesting. I like this. And Brian has big, like 24 inch rides, you know, they're thin, but they're big with rivets in them and he's just like leans into them somehow and no sound comes out except this beautiful little like puff of a crash, like out of a 24 inch cymbal. Meanwhile, you know, I'm trying that and the cymbal's just getting out of hand. So, um, he's, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So I, I like his, uh, choreography as well. So uh, those are three examples of drummers that I've tried to, um, you know, channel them, you could say, tried to act that that role. And, you know, this um this is not limited to just in drumming. So I have another example. Um Willie Ornellis, who a lot of people don't know, but in the 60s, 70s, well, the 70s and 80s, he was one of the top session guys in Los Angeles. And I met him uh when I was a student at Dick Grove and he came in and subbed for John Ferraro who was our sort of contemporary rock fusion teacher. John Ferraro was, of course, known for playing with uh, Larry Carlton. And so these guys are ultra heavyweights. And Willie Arnellis, um, you may not know his name, but he was on thousands of, of television shows. You know, he was one of the mainstay guys in L.A. that did that kind of work back in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, emergency and... Uh, um, Barnaby Jones and, you know, Cagney and Lacey and Hill Street Blues and anything that Mike Post uh, was the composer for, which was a lot of those kind of L.A. Law, Hill Street Blues type shows. Willie was the drummer. So Willie uh, came in once and he said, you know, what I like to do is I like to, when I'm learning something, I like to walk while I'm listening to it. And I'll just get out of the house and I'll just go walk down the street and I'll listen to the music and I'll try to walk like how I feel the music is telling me how I should walk, right? So if you think about like, you know, the very beginning of Saturday Night Fever, that famous scene where Staying Alive is playing the Bee Gees soon, and there's John Travolta walking down the street. And it's a perfect symbiotic combination of movement and music. And the music perfectly captures the swagger of his walk, And the song is about, you can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. That's badass. The lyrics tie in to his, you know, you see Travolta and it's, he's got the, you know, the polyester pants and the cool faux leather boots and the, you know, the, the fake silk shirt. And he's just like cruising with this badass look on his face and he's badass. Like he completely pulls it off. And so, you know, I, I, It's kind of interesting because I live in New York now for the last, um, nine years. I just passed my nine year anniversary of moving to New York on April 24th. Um, moved here nine years ago, but I, one of my favorite songs to put on, you know, in New York, you walk a lot. You walk miles every day pretty much because that's how you get around and it's you know sometimes it's prohibitively expensive to take a cab and often taking a cab in the middle of the day the traffic is so bad you're just going to sit in the cab so you can take the subway but you got to walk and uh one of my favorite tunes to walk to excuse me i have to cough (laughs) is uh, a song by miles davis in his as he headed into his fusion period and the song is called right off it's kind of like a takeoff of right on because the album was recorded when everybody was walking around going right on. So it's called right off. And, uh, it's, it's on the album, Jack Johnson. It's a tribute to, uh, a pioneering black boxer from the 1920s called Jack Johnson. Miles Davis was very into black empowerment in his day. And Jack Johnson was a, a very important figure in black empowerment uh, because he succeeded as a champion boxer and against all odds of the you know, mainstream white community to take him down and prevent him from even having a chance to, um, uh, to, to be in contention. So this song is amazing. It's, it's a long tune. It's a rock infusion tune. John McLaughlin is on, uh, guitar miles um and the drummer's billy cobham and it's like this rock shuffle but it's very loose and very kind of rough and all over the place not time-wise but just free it's got a jazzy element to it but it's Damn, is it rocking. John McLaughlin's got distortion on his guitar, and it's like, it's so badass. And it makes me just want to get up and walk. And it's a perfect kind of tune. So I'll put this on. I'll be walking through New York, and I'll just feel like John Travolta. I'm just like a badass walking through New York. I got all kinds of attitude. You know, maybe you don't see it on my face, but... I'm walking and I'm in New York and I'm gonna frickin' take this town by storm. You know what I'm saying? So again, I put myself in a role, in a mood, in a, in a, in a certain place, a certain physicality, which then helps my, uh, my drumming. It helps me to really bring that much more to the role that I'm playing, right? So wh- how does all this come together? Well, uh, you know, once you do this a lot, in practice, when you're walking, um, you know, when you're in the practice room, when you're listening to music, even you can, you can conjure up feelings. Uh, Most of us do already. Music makes us feel certain ways, but you can bring that, try to bring that into your physicality and become an actor, you know, and it's a little, might make you a little self-conscious at first. You might feel a little weird doing it, but you got to do it. You got to be brave. You got to be bold. You have to take that leap because that's what actors do. And that's what great drummers do. So, what that has given me over the years being conscious of that it allows me on gigs to like turn it off and on at will and i may not even be consciously aware of who i'm channeling but say um you know this gig i do on on uh every monday night at birdland is a a quote-unquote open mic and i've talked about it i did a whole podcast about my experience there but it's a very intense gig basically we play for three hours without a break or maybe one or two songs off. It's a quote-unquote open mic night, but it's not your, you know, your mom's open mic at the coffee house with the twelve-year-old on their guitar. Uh, it's it's the best Broadway singers. Uh, it's the best cabaret performers. It's rock stars, pop stars, um, legendary actors. People like Barry Manilow, Liza Minnelli, uh, Cheetah Rivera, uh, Michael Feinstein, uh, John Pizzarelli, Dave Koz. Um uh, we've had art Garfunkel, Kenny Loggins, uh, uh Nona Hendrix, who was in the band LaBelle. They did the, that Patty LaBelle, the, you know, song of Lady Marmalade, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy people, um, from every kind of corner of the entertainment business that Midler's been in, um, uh, you know, and <clears throat> so we never know what's coming because it's completely impromptu. And we never know what style we're going to do. We've got country, jazz, pop, um a lot of Sarah Bareilles tunes, a lot of um you know and then a lot of standards and show tunes of course, uh cuz that's the staple of Broadway. But um every week we got to bring it because uh not only are my fellow musicians in the house band badasses our piano player Billy Stritch was Liza Minnelli's musical director for 25 years he worked with Tony Bennett he's worked with a lot of the biggest names in the business so i got to make sure that i'm up to his standard and also following his musical direction because a lot of these tunes there's no chart for me there's no um you know there's no uh uh, we don't know what the arrangements is going to be. We're making it up on the spot, but what we do and what we do so well, and I've been doing that gig now for more than eight years, we are, we inhabit the role. You know, if, you know, he might say, Oh, this is kind of a, soulful gospel 12-8. Well, I'm going to put myself into an Aretha Franklin situation at that moment and figure out how to get my little jazz drum set, you know, because I use 18, 12, 14 with a five and a half snare that's tuned up pretty high. And I I tune the 18 down a bit so I can get a rock uh, bass drum sound if I need it. And I tune the floor tom down, but I keep the rack tune tuned high, the 12-inch rack tom tuned high so that no matter what type of tune comes in, I can go to those particular instruments that I need to in order to make it sound more authentic. So it's a very interesting gig and a part of what makes me successful. And as I said, like what our goal is as a band is no matter what the song, uh, whether I have a chart or not, whether I'm just watching the MD, whether I know the song or not, a lot of times we get songs that are in odd times or they have breaks in the middle or the stops or, you know, and so the the MDs, there's usually... two different ones. Billy's the main one. The other guy's a guy named Ted Ted Firth, who's also fantastic. They're great at cueing and leading a band, but I've got to be great at instantly interpreting the song, the style, the music, the era. And of course, me, I'm a historian. I'm an expert in styles. And so this gig is, is built for me. But what I find really kicks it in is when I go into my my, my Steve Jordan or my Brian Blade, or my John Bonham or my, you know, Irv Kotler, if we're doing a Sinatra thing or my, you know, Broadway, uh, kind of, um, physicality. I inhabit those roles and I become that drummer. Um, and I've, I've had so much experience that I can kind of and sometimes it's a new role that I've never inhabited. It's just like, how do I feel right now? How am I going to bring that feeling into what's going on? What song is it? What's the mood? What is the mood of the performer? You know, what are they bringing? Because each performer that comes up, they're usually really good at what they do. So they're, you know, we can really cue off of them. But even if they're not that experienced, the three of us figure out what it is they're doing and we bring it really hard behind them. So they have a great time and the audience doesn't care what the quality of the performer is because the band is killing it on every tune, you know? And I would say the same goes for if I'm doing the countess gig, I know, you know, I've brought a bringing a six and a half inch snare on that gig. I tune my rack tom way low. I tune my floor tom low. I bring the bass drum down. So I'm thinking big, fat, heavy sounding stuff. I'm using, you know, heavier cymbals than I would normally use. I got a second snare and I crank that way up and I put a, uh, a splash cymbal. I tape a 10-inch splash cymbal to the top of the second snare. So when I hit it, it sounds more like a drum machine hand clap or something. And I'm having a lot of fun with this, but it takes a while to kind of integrate it all into what's happening in in that particular show. So um, I'm going to leave it here, but I just um, hope that this this topic has been, um, you know, has been of interest to you guys that um, you've taken something away from this. It's a lot to think about and it really has nothing to do with the physics, the physic, you know, what we're physically doing when we drum. It's more our approach, our attitude, and what we bring to the overall picture. So I hope you will... uh, you will, uh, send me some feedback. Please let me know what you think of these podcasts. If you have topics that you want me to go over, I will, I have sort of a list of, uh, drummers that you guys want me to do a deep dive into, which, which I will be getting to that and a couple of other topics. Um, and, uh, Uh, Please do uh, be in touch. You can follow me on Facebook, Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator. I'm on Instagram, uh, Daniel Glass 66. No, no, I'm sorry, Daniel Glass Drums. I've been posting a lot more on Instagram lately. And of course, if you're enjoying this podcast, please go to uh, the... uh, Uh, to uh, Apple iTunes uh, and uh, give us a rating for the Drummer's Resource podcast. So thanks for listening and uh, keep swinging, baby. We'll see you next time on the Daniel Glass Show only on Drummer's Resource.